Hi, folks. It's Foss here from thechrisfossshow.com. Welcome to the podcast. We certainly appreciate being with us today. Be sure to give us a like, hit that subscribe button uh, to all the different iTunes, uh, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all those different places we have it. And be sure to refer the show to your friends. We certainly appreciate that. Write us a few good reviews on there. We certainly appreciate that as well. Today, we have a very, very interesting person with some very, very interesting stories about the beginning of Disneyland, how things started out, the beginning of of theme parks in America and everything else. Uh, so uh, it, Mike Virgentino is on the show today. He's a journalist and marketing communications executive for corporations and nonprofits. He began his career in the newsrooms of New York City area radio stations. He's also a historian, and he has written a book called Freedom Land USA, The Definitive History. It's published by Theme Park Press and available on Amazon, eBay, and other websites. And he's going to tell the amazing story of how the creation of Freedom Land USA, its origins, and where it went, and how it ended up is uh, going to be pretty amazing. In fact, you're going to be really surprised, especially if you like Disney sort of background and stuff like that. And you love theme parks, but who doesn't? So we're going to bring him on the show and talk to him right now. All right. Well, hey, welcome to the show, Mike Virgentino. How you doing, man? Thanks for coming on. Hi. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, this is a pretty interesting topic. You're going to be telling a story that I've never heard before. But uh, first of all, give us a little bit more detail, information about yourself, what you do, what you did up to this point that kind of motivated you to write this story, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, I, I'm a, a New Yorker uh, by birth. I was uh, raised in the Bronx. And uh, I started uh, my career uh, as a radio journalist, went to college uh, for journalism uh, locally in the, in the Bronx, and uh, was a radio journalist at New York City uh, radio stations as well as some suburban stations, and then uh, gradually morphed into more the corporate world uh, where I worked in marketing communications and public relations and worked with some uh, uh, big clients over the years, uh, names that would be familiar to you, as well as uh, on staff at some major corporations, again, uh, uh, Fortune 500 companies. And uh, what I decided to do was go back to my roots, in a sense. A lot of the things I had done in, in my work career, I always uh, dovetailed to history. Clients have, have a history, the corporations I work for have a history, people have a history. But why I got so interested in all kinds of history goes right back to my upbringing in the Bronx, because I grew up immediately outside of a theme park called Freedom Land USA, and it was an American history theme park, uh, and it uh, never... Uh, appeared before, and it likely never will be recreated again. And uh, I decided uh, about 10 years ago, as social media was really uh, coming on board, I started a memory page on Facebook dedicated to Freedom Land. And I figured there would be other baby boomers like myself who would remember the park and, and would join in. And my memory page wasn't exactly... Here's a picture. Do you remember uh, this attraction at the park? With my interest in history, I delved into who created the attraction. Uh, what were the pieces that went into it? Who were some of the de designers? 
what company manufactured it, where did, uh, you know, how did people enjoy the attraction, and when the park closed, where, if anywhere, did that specific attraction go? Wow. So I was doing this, yeah, I was doing this for about eight years or so at the time, and in addition to Facebook, added Instagram, added Twitter, just to keep the memory of the park alive. And um, I was interviewed for a book uh, that was being written by a journalist friend of mine, and, and he had an interesting take. He compared the similarities between Disneyland, Walt Disney World, the New York World's Fair, and Freedomland. And he interviewed me for the Freedomland component of the book. And at that point, the publisher, which is Theme Park Press, uh, said to him, um, do you have anyone to write a forward for the book or an introduction? And he immediately asked me. And uh, I whipped it together. Uh, the author really enjoyed it. He said, I, I, you know, I, right, I got it right on target of what he was trying to express in the book. And the publisher asked him, because the publisher loved it too, he said, how well does this guy know Freedom Land? <laughs> and he was uh, and he was told by by my author friend, who uh, who was a, a journalist at the time, and he said, you know, he, he's like the historian. He's the guru. You wow. think he's got a book in him? Well, of, of course, because uh, the, my career background, a journalist, uh, public relations, marketing, I sure, I can whip together a book, and pretty much I had started down that road with the Facebook page eight years earlier. Wow. So that's how the book came about, and uh, uh, the funny thing is that once we put it to bed uh, last November, um, all of a sudden I started finding out even more information about the park that I that hadn't turned up during my initial research. And since the book came out at the end of January. I've been contacted by so many more people who said, I worked at the park, I've got a story for you. Oh, wow. Or you should know about, you should know about this person. So right now I'm, I'm compiling information. There will be a book, too, <laughs> um, maybe a couple of years down the road. But uh, uh, it, it's, it's just been a, a fun adventure to, in a sense, not only reliving a park that was in the Bronx in my neighborhood, but reliving my childhood. It's and it probably a lot of people that you're in contact with, and people that have memories of the park, or even their childhood. I mean, those are some of the moments uh, at at parks that you you know you remember for all your life. Really, they're they're the the kind of the top of your childhood fun. Yeah, that's correct. Everyone says, "Wow, I had you know I had uh, I remember Freedom Land, but I had really totally forgotten about it until I." saw your Facebook page or I heard about your book, then all of a sudden all those memories rushed forward. And it was mostly memories of kids, and, and they could be anywhere from five years old, they could have been uh, you know, early teens, kids who went to the park with their parents, and it gave up those warm and fuzzy memories of our childhood in the early 60s, uh, you know, uh, enjoying uh, an entertainment venue, uh, a theme park, with mom and dad or aunt and uncle or cousins. And, and that comes through from a lot of people. Uh, a, a business colleague I know uh, was walking through an airport about a month or so ago, 
and he saw someone, uh, you know, waiting at the gate reading my book. And he stopped in front of him. He says, I see you're reading the Freedom Land book. And the fellow was about halfway through it. He says, this is one of the best books I've read in a long time. All my childhood memories are intertwined with that park, and it, they're just all rushing forward. So that, that's kind of the reaction I'm getting uh, from, from everyone. And the interesting thing about this story that I think most of our listeners are going to really be interested in is how this ties into Disney and its beginnings as well. Yes. Uh, let's go into the, the Disneyland story a little okay. bit. We all know that uh, Walt Disney uh, and his brother Roy, who was the, uh, the business brains of the company, and Walt being the uh, creative part of the business, had a very successful company that they had built up from the, the late 20s or early 30s. Well, uh, Walt always had this idea of creating a theme park where his, uh, a park that his daughters could enjoy, a park that any kids uh, could enjoy with their parents, uh, good, wholesome fun. Uh, so Roy had, all, uh, I'm sorry, Walt had all this uh, turning in his brain, and he, uh, he and Roy go to a, a research company out there in California called the Stanford Research Institute. Uh, it was at that time affiliated with Stanford University. And uh, he said, I, I want to hire... Uh, Stanford Research to help me put together the logistics, the concepts for this idea I have for a theme park. Well, the team is assembled at Stanford Research and put a, at the head of the team is a fellow by the name of Cornelius Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt Wood, known as C.V. Wood. His close friends called him Woody. Now, Woody was in his early 30s at the time. He had previously worked at a, uh, an airplane manufacturer uh, coming out of World War II, and um, so now he was working at Stanford Research and put in charge of the Disney concept for a theme park. Um, they go through all the logistics, all the analytics of the day, uh, even where the park is going to be situated, thinking how many people could walk through the park in a given day. What could the revenues be? Uh, the park's location, do, does the city uh, uh, have to build uh, extra highways? Do we have to make sure there's an entrance and, uh, and access ramps uh, uh, and exit ramps uh, to the park? All this fed into the process to present to the Disney Brothers. And uh, to the extent that Woody even selected the land, which was an orange grove wow. that is now occupies uh, is occupied by Disneyland, an orange city, so, California. Right. <clears throat> so all this concept is put together, and uh, Roy, Roy and Walt decide to go forward and build the park, and they bring C.V. Wood on board as the general manager, to take uh, Walt's imagination and bring it to life. Wow. And technically, Woody becomes the first Disneyland employee. So they go through a number of, uh, a, a number of highs and lows, as, as with the startup of uh, 
any new creation. Uh, of course, Disney has backing him all his Imagineers, all his good creative people to help bring this to life. Disney also has his uh, national television show uh, that he can promote and help generate interest in the park and also help generate financing for the park. Um, so Woody is with uh, the Disney brothers and, and uh, to build the park, and he stays with them until about a year after the park opened. The park opens in July 1955. Woody is there till uh, almost mid-1956. But they had a love-hate relationship all along the way. Oh, wow. At times, Woody, uh, yeah, at times Woody says, uh, Wall treats me like the son he never had. Uh, at other times, they're butting heads. And, and sometimes, in a good way, as, as all uh, places of business butt heads with the creative ideas and, and paths they want to follow. But the, the major difference is that Woody uh, comes from Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, the Disney brothers come from the Midwest. They come from Missouri. There's a, a slightly different dynamic there. New Yorkers would be very comfortable with Woody, who was a fast-talking, moving guy. Let's get to the next uh, uh, subject at hand. Let's just uh, forge forward. Uh, Walt and Roy were laid back. As I said, they were Midwesterners. And they wanted to make sure everything was done exactly as they wanted it, didn't want to alienate anyone, didn't want to anger anyone. So during this whole process, Woody is, is butting heads mostly with Walt Disney. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the story varies, and, and, and I don't think we'll ever get the true story. Um, Walt finally had it uh, with Woody, and he decides to fire him. Uh, about a year after Disneyland opens. Uh, that's what some stories say. Other stories said Walt had Roy do the dirty work and fire uh, Woody. Mm -hmm. Other stories say that Woody was getting wind of things were souring and decided to leave and start his own business. Uh, uh, there are about 14 to 20 scenarios. Another one being uh, Walt kind of felt that uh, Woody was getting the idea of starting his own parks that would be in competition around the country with Disneyland, and he didn't like that. Also, Woody was getting a lot of publicity for his work, and technically, uh, Walt felt it was all my imagination. Woody just did the, you know, did the physical work. The business. So he didn't care for that. There was also uh, a, 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 a discussion or... Uh, that it was anti uh, thought of that uh, Woody may have been embezzling, and I use that word mm. in quotation marks. Uh, could he, uh, Woody at one point had asked Walt for a raise um, as he was because he was doing magnificent work in getting this park built and ready, and, and and Walt said, "No, we're all in this together. No raises. I'm not even taking a raise." So Woody came up with some uh, plan that when he got uh, companies to sponsor at Disneyland, there may have been a little kickback to him because mm -hmm. he, he felt a little slighted. He didn't get a raise. All of this is uh, circumstantial. Uh, it, it's been floating out there for many years, but you, we can't uh, 
definitely prove most of it because once Woody left uh, Disney Disneyland and the Disney Company, Woody was deep uh, deep six stick at the company. You cannot find out anything about him. All the files have been buried somewhere in the company <laughs> uh, for many years. Especially when Walt and Roy were alive, they would not talk about Woody. They would not acknowledge him. And uh, only in recent years has the Disney Company, because it's now under a different kind of uh, ownership, uh, have they acknowledged uh, the work of C.V. Wood and uh, putting his his proper uh, acknowledging his proper stamp not only on Disneyland but on the theme park industry. You know, I um, bet I bet Donald Duck Donald Duck ate the paperwork. I bet that's what happened. He hit yeah, it. He just ate it. It very well be. It's like, you know, it's it, it, somewhere if it still exists Mickey, at all. Mickey ate it. Uh, Mickey and du- Donald Duck ate it. It sounds like something goofy would do, actually. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah, well, that's, prob- that's probably right. <laughs> Hide the evidence. I think ducks leech just about yeah. anything, won't they? I don't know. All right. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, he, he basically was the business brains, the logistics, laying down... The layout, choosing, I mean, he basically built Disneyland. Walt went to, you know, and, and this happens a lot of times with the creatives and business people. You know, business people, they got to make the bottom line match. You know, creatives are running around going, let's spend $5 million to make something really cool. I don't know why I made, did that voice like Mickey. Yeah. Um, well, you did your Mickey voice there. <laughs> I, that was totally uh, subconscious, then, too. I didn't mean to do that. That's funny. Yeah, that's exactly right, because <laughs> that's exactly how it happened. Uh, Walt would come up with all these ideas of let's do this differently, let's do uh, work this in, and his brother Roy was saying, well, wait a minute, Walt, where are we getting the funding for that? Yeah. Or we really don't have the money for that. Uh, Roy was the straight business, uh, straight shooter, the business uh, operation, and and Walt was that creative out of the box thinker, and Woody was in between them saying. Well, I can I can do what Walt wants, and you know we can get the people, whether internally or we have to hire, or we have to hire some vendors to do it. And Roy is saying, "Well, Woody, do you really have to do that? I don't know where the money's coming from." So he was kind of caught between the two brothers. Wow! Uh, at that, this is pretty yeah. amazing. He was so, Disneyland's first employee, and that's pretty cool. Um, uh, those of you who are listening right now, go to Amazon, eBay, or other websites. You can check out Freedom Land USA, the definitive history um, published by Theme Park Press. This is pretty cool. And and so we're, we're so they had this falling out. They um, so what happened to CB Wood then? Okay. Uh, well, before we go to that, I want to mention another book to okay. you. Um, it, it's called Three Years in Wonderland by Todd James Pierce. And he goes into the complete story of C.V. Wood and the Disney Brothers. And that book only came out a couple of years ago. And if for anyone who's interested in the history of Disneyland, this is a, this is a book of, of Pierce's is a must-read. But uh, coming out of Disneyland, uh, Woody sets up his own company called Marco Engineering. Now... Uh, Woody knows all the vendors. He knows all the, the companies that helped uh, make the, uh, the attractions, uh, he, all the companies that want to be sponsors. Uh, so he starts up his own company saying that, you know, I helped create Disneyland, 
I can, you know, I can do uh, create a park in your neck of the woods if, if that so interests you. Oh yeah, and that and that concept did interest a number of people for the following reason: Disneyland was in California. You have to remember this is the late 1950s. How many families were going to be able to take their children either from Chicago, New York? Dallas and drive or fly all the way to California back in, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Yes, Disneyland was going to draw uh, people who came by car throughout California and maybe some of the neighboring states, but certainly my parents, uh, with me growing up in the Bronx, were not taking a cross-country drive and were not uh, spending the money to get on an airplane to spend the week out in California at Disneyland. It, yeah. was, it was just unheard of. Back then, flight travel was so, pretty expensive, too. So you couldn't, <laughs> you know, I, I always left the kids ba- at home back then with the, uh, with, uh, I don't know, the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> right. I left them with the butler. That, that's right. So, uh, so investors and businessmen in various locations around the country see this concept that Disney brought to life in California and said, why can't we have our own version of Disneyland? No, it will not have Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy, but uh, we can have our own theme parks based on the themes we want to create, but use the same concept and have it uh, in our city or in the suburb of a major city and draw people from this local area. So, And who better... So yeah. who better than Mr. Wood to take and do this? Uh, uh, so was this was Disneyland the first real sort of theme park in America? Did he did he was that the first or was there anything before that that was the first? No, there was a, there was a Christmas theme park in um, in the Midwest uh, that had existed from uh, the early forties, if not earlier. Uh, that really was consi- considered a theme park. The uh, Disneyland and Walt Disney are uh, considered uh, the creators of the first modern theme park. Mm. But it, technically, ver- a theme park versus an amusement park, the amusements are, uh, are things, uh, attractions, and as we know them today, uh, the coaster parks, that are not tied together with, with a thread of a common theme. Uh-huh. Uh, so those are the amusement parks. The theme parks are the common themes, such as this Christmas park that was in the Midwest, such as Disneyland, which was based as, as a theme around the Disney characters and the Disney uh, motion pictures and TV show. Hmm. Um, so, so that's where you get a little difference between an amusement park versus a theme park. Okay. Um, so, uh, so. They start coming uh, to C.V. Wood. Uh, can you build one in my area? And, of course, Woody, of course, knows how to do it. He knows a lot of the players to do it, especially uh, the outside manufacturers. So he says, sure, why not? And his company, Marco Engineering, starts doing this. And in the process, pulls in with him a lot of people who worked on Disneyland, including a number of the Imagineers. Hmm. And the first park he builds, or he creates, is Pleasure Island in Golden, Colorado. 
And it was going. It, it had uh, a partial Wild West theme, figuring where it's located. Uh, the park starts building uh, in 1957, 58. Opens in 1958, but is never fully completed, and closes down in 1959. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not the fault of Woody, nor the failure of the other parks are the fault of Woody, because Woody and his team are coming in strictly to create a park and build a park, but the management of each of the parks he he becomes involved in are handled by the local investors, local Mm -hmm. companies, local business people. And if they don't run a park correctly... If they milk it dry, if they run it into the ground, well, a park isn't going to survive. Because what Woody does, he builds the park, gets it up and going, they cut the ribbon, have opening day, he's now working on other projects. He may, he may in some of these parks, if not all of them, have uh, a slight uh, investment in the stock that's floated for each of these parks. He, he has investments, but he's not managing the day-to-day of the park once it opens. He's now moved on. That's a pretty good so, gig. You don't have to deal with the uh, headache yeah. of running it. <laughs> I should do that. I'm like, I'll help you start your business, and then I'm going to leave, and then you can deal with the brain damage. Then I'm going to leave, right? Yeah. right. So, I just want to do the fun part. Uh, so the, Golden, <laughs> the Golden Colorado Park is under the management of uh, local business people there, and they can't make it survive. By that time, Woody has moved on. Uh, to Wakefield, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston, and he uh, he, he builds uh, Pleasure Island uh, uh, up there. And that park, again, has local owners, has, um, uh, you know, local investors, and they make a go of it, but they've had several owners over their existence, and they last from uh, 1959 to 1969. So they lasted an entire decade, but they had financial problems uh, throughout. So that's, uh, that's the one, yeah, that's the one that's just outside of Boston. So here, Woody created the one in Golden, Colorado. He creates the one in Boston. And uh, there's a common thread in here. There's a man by the name of William Zeckendorf. He is the real estate baron of the of the day. He uh, had been working for a real estate company in New York since the nineteen early nineteen forties, and then over the course of the years, as the uh, two business partners uh, uh, became older, um, they uh, they sell out the company to him, and. Um, he becomes this builder of hotels, uh, strip malls, uh, uh, office—you uh, know—office buildings, and not only a, build, a developer and builder, but he t- he takes on ownership of existing properties. So he's just all over the place in terms of uh, all across the country owning real estate, and not only in the country, he even owns a considerable amount in Canada and other countries. Uh, other foreign countries. Uh, so he ends up owning this company he started working for called Web and Nap. He was an investor in that Golden Colorado uh, 
uh, operation built by Woody. And if I called it, I, I don't remember when I introduced the Golden uh, theme park. If I called it Pleasure Island, I made a mistake. It was called Magic Mountain. Oh, okay? well, there you it, go. That, yeah, the magic, but it was the not the Magic Mountain we know today. It was the Magic Mountain in Golden, Colorado, 1958-1959. Wow. Pleasure Island, Pleasure Island was the one in uh, outside of Boston. Okay. Okay. So now, now we're caught up. I, I, sometimes right. I get I, I flip flop the names. So did we just uh, cross over then the origin of uh, Magic Mountain? You said it changed, but was that that was kind of maybe the start no, of that? No. The Magic Mountain in Colorado has nothing to do other with uh, than having the same name as the one that exists. Oh, did uh, they steal on. the name after they okay. went out of business, or they just yeah, the, the one in Colorado? The one in Colorado went out of business. Yeah, but did they, when they went and created the new Magic Mountain that's still alive today, did they just take that name? They're like, hey, that's a great name. We should use it. It, it could be. Maybe the name was not trademarked, or maybe uh, the name was sold. I I, I don't know the extent. Of, of why they selected that name. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, w- William Zekendorf is an investor in Magic Mountain. He's also an investor in Pleasure Island. He says, Woody, come to New York. I have this 400 acres in the Bronx, and we could put one of your parks for New York City right here in the Bronx. Oh, wow. And... Some of the uh, initial management, some of the initial investors in Freedomland are, are of course, local people, uh, New York City business people, but also a number of the, uh, of the business people who uh, had invested and were managing Pleasure Island up in, in the Boston area. So coming down to the Bronx, we have 400 acres of vacant land. You're thinking now, 1960, there were still <laughs> yes. parts of New York City that had not been built over. In that's you know, that's that crazy time. to think of now when you see the skyline there. Well, that's right. Now you're lucky if you find a little postage stamp uh, green of a park somewhere uh, throughout New York. Um, and um, But the problem with this land, it was marshland. It was right on the water... Uh, that would flow in from Long Island Sound uh, into the Bronx area. And it had been marshland since the Native Americans inhabited the property, uh, you know, 500, 600, 700 years ago. This is the same sort of area, if you know the name from your history of Anne Hutchinson, she had escaped... Uh, or had left Rhode Island in the 1500s uh, because she wanted to practice the religion the way she wanted to, she and her family came down and settled in this same marshland area and co-inhabited with the Indians, but uh, uh, some problems arise, and her little area was attacked by, uh, by a tribe, and she and most of her family were wiped out. Oh, wow. Uh, today, today we have in this same area named after her the Hutchison River, and the, and going along it the Hutchison River Parkway. For those who are familiar uh, w- with that part of New York City, um, the land then becomes during colonial times, and I'm talking in the 1700s, becomes a mill. 
because the millers are using the water to turn the, the millstones that comes in from the sound in, the, in the, uh, the tides that come in and the tides that go back out. And this is an integral part of the story because uh, the mill uh, lasts till the, uh, after the Civil War to the late 1800s. The final abandoned building of the mill is uh, destroyed uh, by a storm in 1900, yeah. and there's really nothing else you can do with this property. As you come out of World War II, the, uh, you know, there had been houses, uh, you know, scattered about in the Bronx from the early 1900s, but as you come out of World War II, with all the veterans returning, uh, tracts of land are being built up uh, for housing, uh, not just in the Bronx, but uh, uh, the other areas of, of the city that had not been built up at that time, such as Staten Island and Queens. And, uh, but you couldn't put anything on this 400 acres because it was marshland <laughs> and with the water constantly rushing in and rushing out. Um, so Zeckendorf comes into ownership of this land, and his philosophy was, I always rather owned vacant land, no matter what kind of land it is, because uh, what you can do with it, uh, the uh, opportunities are endless. Uh, I could always figure out something down the road. So Zeckendorf owns this property beginning in about 1951. And again, they, they, they tried uh, years before he owned it to put a small municipal airport there. Well, they tried several times. It failed for various reasons, including you're building it on marshland, which is not a good place to land a plane, uh, even even a small plane <laughs> at the time. And um, uh, there, there was a uh, there were farms uh, at at that time still in the Bronx down in that area, using the feed off of the water that was coming in. Uh, there was even a pickle factory because you could grow, you know, with the with the water coming in, you, the land was very fertile. Um, so Zeckendorf tells Woody, because he now knows Woody from Magic Mountain and Pleasure Island, he says, let's figure out a way to bring one of your parks to New York. So Woody creates Freedom Land, and they put Freedom Land on this vacant piece of property. And... Um, they had to do landfill. They had to bring up the grade of the property. What they end up doing, there's 400 acres. They use 85 acres uh, for the attractions. Compare that to Disneyland, which is only 65 acres. So you can see the size. If you've been to Disneyland, you now see a park that's 20 acres larger uh, than Disneyland. And um, the uh, uh, some of the rest of the acreage is used uh, for maintenance buildings and for parking. So the park uh, encompasses 205 of these acres out of the 400 that are on the property. So they, they have to build up the grade. Uh, I always thought it was funny. Here you are filling in uh, some of the uh, tributaries or so where the water would rush in and out, and then in other places you, you're, you're digging back in to create man-made waterways to use... Uh, to uh, have some of the park uh, aquatic uh, attractions function. Um, and uh, so they fill it up and they uh, uh, shape it in, uh, as, uh, in the shape of the continental United States. 
because this park, unlike some of the other the other two parks Woody built, is going to be strictly American history themed. And uh, they put shovels into the ground in August of 1959. The park opens on Father's Day, uh, June 19, 1960, to unbelievable fanfare. They did uh, so much publicity, so much marketing, so much advertising, that on opening day, over 60,000 people showed up, that uh, by 12 noon, disc jockeys uh, on the local radio stations were telling people, do not go to Freedom Land today. They're closing the gates because they can't accept <laughs> any more people. Pick another day to go. That's awesome. So that was, a, that's an incredible yeah, it opening. Was a, it was a huge success. Um, and uh, and the reason why they had uh, drummed up so much interest, it, again, was because of all the advertising they had done on television and papers and on radio. They even created a jingle for the park. And uh, uh, I'll uh, recite it for you. Uh, my singing voice is not the best, but here it is. Mommy and Daddy, take my hand. Take me out to Freedom Land. Two ninety-five is all you pay at Freedom Land today. You'll see the great Chicago fire. Look out, the flames are getting higher. Battlefields and shady parks, you're right there on the spot. And in that jingle, they tell you a couple of the history attractions you're going to see. A recreation of the 1871 Great Fire in Chicago, as well as a battlefield, the early 1960s, was the time we were commemorating the centennial of the American Civil War. So they actually created a Civil War battlefield that you would be able to journey through. And, and I'll go into that description in a little while as we get into the attractions. So um, what you have is uh, some of the key players, C.V. Wood building and creating along with uh, his Marco engineering team, which includes some former Disney employees, William Zeckendorf, who uh, owns the land. And uh, what is interesting, when they do the groundbreaking in August 1959, the article appears the next day, and of course all the media uh, and, uh, is in the New York Times. And the person who wrote the article for the Times is back then a cub reporter who later becomes a very famous author by the name of Guy, uh, uh, Guy, Guy, uh, Gay Talese. That name may, may ring a bell with a lot of people uh, of, of the books he has written. Um, so uh, what you did is, is you would now have a park with the opening day ribbon is, is cut by entertainer Pat Boone, his wife, and their four young girls. And the park has seven themed areas. You have one called Little Old New York, New York from the 1890s. You have Old Chicago from 1871, with the centerpiece being the Chicago Fire recreation. You also have uh, the Great Plains, uh, where you have the fort uh, uh, from, the, uh, from the west. And, that, and in this area, and in another area known as the Old Southwest, you would have a lot of... Uh, uh, spontaneous shootouts occurring between uh, Billy the Kid and, and the Marshal and, and, and many other uh, outlaws. Um, you went to, uh, from the Great Plains, you went to San Francisco. It was San Francisco of the early 1900s because the centerpiece there 
was uh, the earthquake, uh, the great earthquake, and they had a dock ride uh, that uh, commemorated the earthquake. From San Francisco, you traveled to the Old Southwest that I previously mentioned, and that had the Wild West Saloon and had uh, uh, various other attractions, and again, shootouts would occur uh, spontaneously uh, right outside the saloon as the crowd is, is, <laughs> is gathering. And then you would have, um, uh, from the Old Southwest, you would go into New Orleans Mardi Gras. Uh, it was Mardi Gras all the time down there, and that's where you had uh, the Civil War uh, battlefield attraction located, wow. uh, along with other attractions. And then you moved from, satellite, uh, from um, New Orleans, you moved to the only contemporary area of the park. It was called Satellite City. And what they decided to do, it, it was very similar to what we know, in, what was in Disneyland of Tomorrowland. It really took advantage of what was in the news of the day, which was the space race with Russia. So you had uh, that modern or contemporary section. And then you would go back through uh, into Little Old New York and you would exit and, and go to, the, uh, to your cars. Some of the attractions you had in Little Old New York would be uh, such things as antique cars. We call them at the park the horseless carriage. They were early 1900 Cadillacs that you could actually drive yourself, unlike antique car rides you see today. This one did not have a guide rail. Hmm. So uh, you, were, you were within a roadbed that you couldn't get out of, but uh, you, you had a little maneuverability, unlike the cars today. You had uh, a brick building that recreated the old breweries of uh, Manhattan, and Brooklyn uh, from the late 1800s, and this was sponsored by a popular New York uh, beer known as Schaefer Beer. Hmm. Um, you also had a lot of shops in these winding streets that really were simulating uh, New York City uh, down by the Battery, the old part of New York City. So a lot of the streets were curved and winding. Macy's was a major sponsor, and they recreated their original first store uh, in the park. And they just didn't sell park souvenirs. They sold a number of items that you could buy at their main store in mid-Manhattan. Uh, you had, of course, the New York Harbor was recreated. They had, uh, <laughs> uh, they had recreated tugboats that were popular in the late 1800s in New wow. York City that people could ride on. Uh, on, a, on a lake that uh, was a uh, man-made lake on the property. Uh, so uh, that was a very popular attraction there, too, as well as all the shops. You had a glass blower shop. You had a shop that made posters and could put your, your face or your, your likeness on a poster. You had street artists. Uh, you had uh, uh, a lot of the popular... Uh, stores that were in New York at the time, you, a bakery, uh, you had uh, a very popular uh, deli where you could get hot pastrami, you know, typical New York fare that you could get in little old New York. You then went into Chicago. You could either walk into Chicago or you could take the horse-drawn trolley that, that uh, went from New York to Chicago and back again. Uh, but also in Chicago, you had uh, the train that, uh, that circled the park. And 
don't think of any train you see in an amusement park or theme park today. These were authentic uh, steam engines from mm-hmm. the late 1800s, early 1900s. And the coaches were all the size. They were the original coaches that were used back then. Freedomland spent a lot of money uh, making sure things were authentic or as authentic as possible to give the flavor that you're enjoying America and learning from American history. This is so pretty amazing. You had, you had two engines. Uh, the funny thing about the engines they uh, and the entire trains, uh, they were leased every season, and they were brought down from a, a, a train attraction uh, up in Massachusetts. And when they came and were put on the track, they would have to be brought down uh, each year, sometimes by barges, sometimes on flatbed trucks, and then put onto the tracks. And at the end of the season, usually the beginning of October, they were brought back uh, to Massachusetts. The, the engineers who were with these uh, engines in Massachusetts could not drive them uh, at Freedom Land. They could be in the cabin and could provide uh, insight, mechanical information, you know, how to fix them, maintenance and all that, but they couldn't drive them because they were not members of the New York Union. <laughs> and the unions played a big role at Freedom Land in, in terms of uh, jobs that you had there. So they had to use union members who knew how to drive trains uh, to drive the Freedom Land uh, trains. And this is pretty amazing. This is pretty amazing. I'm looking at the photos actually right now on Google of the different maps and stuff, and they they basically built the park to kind of look like a mini USA, like the whole United States. The these this sort of layout of the United States it was the layout of the park. Yeah, that, that's exactly correct. There, there is a photo I have found from 1959 where they've already filled in the land, and now they're going to start the construction. And you actually see the continental United States outlined in whatever paint or chalk from this aerial view right on the property. And they had a train that would go all the way around to all the different, like, main segments of the United States that they put in there. Yeah, well, what you had was the train had two stops. Uh Uh, you, you, You could get on or get off at either Old Chicago... Mm-hmm. or at the other end of the park, San Francisco. There was a third train station, which was really uh, m- more there for cosmetic purposes. It was one room, and it, it looked more like a, sw- uh, a train switch house than it did a station. And the room inside was unfinished, and it was there as a prop because that's where uh, the cowboy robbers would hang out. So as the train approached the... Uh, that area uh, of the park, the robbers would come out of that little one-room station and and board the train so they could uh, uh, portray that they were robbing the passengers. And uh, it had, uh, it looks like it had, uh, oh, that's a skyride from somewhere else. Uh, it looks like it had at one of those, uh, uh, oh, the water boats, the steamboats uh, that they have in the south, I guess. The, the stern wheelers, yes, yeah. we had. They, they, they were called Mississippi River boats. So yeah. we had stern wheelers, and that was in the Chicago area, uh, because what they did is they created their version of the Great Lakes. It, it, it was from Chicago 
and and to the top uh, boundary of the park, which was considered the border with Canada. So they created the Great Lakes, and several attractions shared that same waterway. The stern wheelers, and there were two of them. One was called the American, one was called the Canadian. Um, you had uh, the uh, New York Harbor tugboats. They shared the same waterway. They just came out of the New York dock. And then for a couple of seasons, you had Indian war canoes, which were guided by a couple of Native Americans, and you could get maybe uh, 15 to 19 guests of the park in there, and they could paddle their way around a, a man-made island uh, and get some uh, stories from actual Native Americans who uh, were hired throughout the park to portray the in the Indian village and other attractions that required uh, Indians to be involved. They, they weren't necessarily character actors that were hired. They were actual Native Americans. Some from the Penobscot tribe came down every year from Maine. Uh, and some of uh, uh, Brooklyn had a large Native American population, which a lot of people don't know about, because a lot of them uh, put up the steel uh, for the skyscrapers in Manhattan, and they ended up settling in Brooklyn. So a lot of them uh, were employed by the park to fill these roles. Also in Chicago, as I had mentioned before, you had the recreation of the Chicago Fire. Walking through Chicago would be Mrs. O'Leary and her cow. And I use the word Mrs. O'Leary, Mrs. very loosely, because all the pictures I've seen from the park, uh, there were two Mrs. O'Leary's, and they were both portrayed by men, and in all these pictures you could always see the 5 o'clock shadow. <laughs> Maybe Mrs. So, O'Leary had a five o'clock shadow. Who knows? Man. Yeah, and, and maybe the, the reason was because the cow that they tugged along was a was a very large cow. Maybe they felt uh, a man character actor could handle that cow and move that yeah. cow better. Maybe uh, than a woman. Maybe the uh, so, uh, maybe the uh, maybe that's the reason Chicago burned. Mrs. O'Leary was just that ugly. Uh, <laughs> I'm seeing I'm, and the, those of you those of you guys who are tuning in check out Freedom Land USA the definitive history published by Theme Park Press it's available on Amazon, eBay and other websites we're on with Mike Virgentino he's the author of the book I'm seeing Mike on the interwebs here uh, there was, is a UFO that was on the site uh, like a built up UFO yeah, that was in the Satellite City area, uh-huh. uh, and, and, we'll, and we'll get to it as we go around the park, and I'll explain what that was also. Uh, but in uh, getting back to old Chicago, Mrs. O'Leary and the cow all of a sudden would disappear, and about two minutes later, the yell out of fire would occur, and this building that was in the center of old Chicago would catch on fire. The flames... If the, if the wind was right that day, that fl the flames could go 10 feet in the air. And the, fire, uh, the flames are coming out of the windows and coming out of the top of the building. And they would uh, have the local fire department, which were actors, rushing with a genuine 1850 or so water pumper to come out there and pump water on the flames, and they would get people from the park, the, the, the visitors to the park, to man the water pump. And every kid wanted to man that pump because it was just, you know, I'm fighting the Chicago fire. 
But if you were too short, you were shoot away like I was one time because when the pump went up on one side, if your feet were going to leave the ground, that was dangerous. So they had to make sure your feet of all the kids stayed on the ground. Um, So the fire would erupt at first every 15 minutes. Then they extended it over the years. So by the end of Freedom Land, it was... uh, the pump was going, uh, the fire was going maybe once every three hours. And the reason was the flames were fed by gas jets. So the, the, if you have the fire going off less often, you're saving money. You're not spending so much money on the gas. The first season of Freedom Land, they spent $35,000 on the gas alone Whoa. for that attraction. Yeah. That's a lot of gas. So, uh, <laughs> that is a lot of gas. Even even for someone from the Bronx, that's a lot of gas. Um, so once you left old Chicago and its various attractions, you moved into the Great Plains. This is where I said the fort was located. And you would have a shooting gallery in there for the guests. Um, you would have other uh, activities that uh, would generate uh, in a fort. They may have kids participating in soldier drills. They would have uh, a square dancing, uh, historic uh, attractions such as that. And you would also have, of course, the shootouts, the jail, and you would have uh, all of a sudden fights break out, uh, fist fights as well as uh, gunfights between all the various character actors um, who portrayed good guys and, and bad guys. A lot of these actors were... Uh, were union members because they uh, performed on Broadway. They may have been in the uh, in the ensemble and the various casts of, of, of Broadway shows, and they were doing this as, to supplement their incomes. And some of them uh, were in name Broadway shows, uh, including uh, significant roles in those shows. Uh, but they did this uh, as side jobs uh, to work uh, during those months. Also in uh, the Great Plains, you had a, a barn and a farm with a petting zoo that was sponsored by Bordens. And it was known as Elsie's Boudoir. Elsie the cow was at Freedom Land. You would walk into the barn and you would walk into what seemed like Elsie's elaborate bedroom. It, 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 it looked more uh, like a... Uh, as if you had to pay Elsie for her services. That's the way they set up the room, <laughs> because you had red curtains, red lamps. Uh, Elsie was supposedly uh, uh, relaxing in a brass bed, but really what it was, she was standing, and the hay was brought up to, like, her hips, uh, but it looked like she was reposing in the bed. And also her two calves, uh, would also be in there. And a lot of people, a lot of kids at the time, have very fond memories of seeing Elsie the Cow at Freedom Land. Wow. Um, also in, in, in the Great Plains, you had stagecoach rides. Uh, and you would go through the Freedom Land's recreation of, uh, of the Rockies. And around the bend, you never know if you were going to be held up uh, 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 by bushwhackers uh, uh, or desperados or even Native Americans. So you had to be careful when you were on those rides. 
Uh, an interesting story is that originally the stagecoaches, which were sponsored by American Express, uh, had four horses, a team of four horses. Um, but ten days into the, the first season of the park, uh, the train whistle spooked a team of horses. And they got out of control, and the, uh, one of the coaches tipped over, and the ten people on board were injured, including several, uh, a woman and a, and a young girl were injured very seriously, and they required uh, uh, to be sent to the hospital. So after that, they, uh, they took the team down to two horses, uh, because they were easier to manage two horses versus four. And that's where we get the word Teamsters from. They drove the team of horses, and the Teamsters driving the stagecoach at Freemland were union members. So you would then go uh, from there, you would go out to San Francisco of 1906. This included the uh, other train stop for the Santa Fe Railroad that ran through the park. Um, you also had recreations of Fisherman's Wharf, the Barbary Coast, and San Francisco's Chinatown. Chung King had a restaurant here at Freedom Land, one of the first restaurants they ever opened uh, in the uh, Chinatown section of the park. One of the main attractions was a dark ride called Earthquake, and it simulated the earthquake uh, from uh, the early 1900s. And uh, uh, it was one of the popular dark rides uh, anywhere at the time in the country. And it was one of several that were created for Freedomland. Uh, besides Earthquake, Freedomland had a Buccaneer ride and a Tornado ride in New Orleans. And we'll talk a little bit about that uh, soon. And it had in the Old Southwest a mine cavern ride. We would go with the miners deep down, supposedly, into the earth. Uh, to watch them dynamite looking for iron ore and, and any of the other creatures that were inhabiting the underworld uh, uh, down there. And um, all of these were created by Arrow Development. Arrow was a up-and-coming company in the 1950s that Walt Disney hooked onto with the help of C.V. Wood, and they made a lot of the attractions at Disneyland. Well, Wood, when he started building his own park, knew the Arrow guys and started using them for his, for his various parts. So they did the four dock rides at Freedomland, as well as a couple of other rides uh, at the park. One of them uh, called uh, Tilt-A-Whirl, uh, Tilt which is uh, very closely uh, mimics the teacups at Disneyland. Oh, wow. You also had in San Francisco a water ride, that went through the Lewis and Clark expedition. It was called the Northwest Fur Trapper uh, Ride. You got into bull boats, which were similar to the boats used by Lewis and Clark, and you went out into the wilderness uh, to see uh, uh, Native American, uh, uh, you know, uh, tribes. Uh, you would see uh, settlers. Uh, you would see in, you would see Skeleton uh, Town, which was. All the cowboys uh, were actual skeletons uh, at the bar or uh, fishing, and even the horse that they had there was a skeleton. And th this, whichever company, and I don't know which one it was, that created this skeleton town, you would see it in other theme parks across the country at that time and into the 70s and, and 80s. 
including Cedar Point in Ohio, had a very similar uh, creation of Skeleton Town. Oh wow! Um, so how long? Also, how yeah. long did did uh, how long did Freedom uh, Freedom Land run for? Well, it opened. It, it lasted for five seasons. It opened in 1960, mm-hmm. and it closed. Uh, the end of the season in 1964. So basically about and five or six years, huh? Five years, five seasons. Wow. Uh, and as we get into Satellite City, I'll be telling you the story of, of, of what happened. Oh, okay. Two Freedom Land, Maya closed. Uh, you had also in, in the old Southwest, you had, uh, you had a sky ride. Uh, we called it the Tucson Mining Company or a bucket ride. And... It was created by a company uh, from Europe called Von Roll, and they've created a lot of sky rides, trams around the world for uh, more than 60, 70 years, uh, including uh, the Disneyland uh, sky ride they created. And uh, you'll see them in a lot of parks here in the U.S. Uh, I think the San Diego Zoo has a Von Roll, uh, as, as well as some of the great adventure parks. And... What was interesting about the Freedomland Von Roll, they had, it looked like it had four tables going back and forth, two going in one direction, two going the other direction. It actually was two cables that just went on a loop. But when, to the naked eye, it looked like four uh, cables, and it was the first time uh, four cables, in a sense, had been used in any park, at least in America. Uh-huh. The... Uh, so Von Roll built it, but the actual ore buckets came from the 1958 Brussels World's Fair, uh, and they were purchased by the park and put there. Uh, as you move on to New Orleans, um, I mentioned earlier you had the Civil War attraction. They created a Civil War battlefield. You as a park guest would get into a wagon, that was drawn by two horses or two mules. The wagon was a correspondence wagon that was flying a flag of truce, so you could go between the lines. And while you're going between the lines, the cannon is going off over you, the warring armies are firing over you, and you're actually hearing the booms, you're seeing the fire coming out of the muzzles, and you're seeing some of the figures actually moving. This was the beginning of audio animatronics that we know so well in Disney, uh, especially how they've done Pirates of the Caribbean uh, and how everything moves in that attraction. Because Woody had worked at Disneyland, Disney had been in the forefront of audio animatronics. Well, when Woody was building his parks, he was able to tap into that technology because he hired some of the Disney employees who, who, who had designed audio-animatronics. Um, a few years later, for those who were lucky enough to go to the New York World's Fair, and if you weren't, you may have heard this story, there was an attraction uh, for the state of Illinois uh, pavilion uh, that featured uh, a speech by Abraham Lincoln, and Lincoln actually stood up out of his chair and that was a wow moment in 1964. I remember seeing it as a kid and saying, wow, this robot is standing up. 
that was a Disney creation, and it was starting the advancement of audio animatronics. Oh, wow. Uh, so they, they had the Civil War ride because, as I had mentioned earlier, it was the centennial of the American Civil War. Early on the books, on the planning stages for Freedom Land, they had some kind of attraction dedicated uh, to commemorate the Revolutionary War, and they would have had it just as an offshoot of little old New York, and they were going to have something about Bunker Hill. Uh, but because when they were cutting back expenses, uh, they decided to keep uh, the Civil War attraction because we were into the, the centennial commemoration. Well, also in uh, New Orleans, you had the Buccaneer ride, and very similar to Pirates of the Caribbean. The story that I have heard is that a Disney employee who's now working uh, with Marco Engineering and Woody had the plans or had worked on the original Pirates of the, of the Caribbean concept for Disney and had the ideas and the plans in his head. And they created, or had Arrow Development create this dark ride. Now, what's interesting is originally at Disneyland, Pirates of the Caribbean was going to be a walkthrough, sort of like a, a, a wax museum type of attraction. When Freedom Land opens and, and creates this buccaneer ride, Walt Disney pulls the concept for Pirates. Uh, Freedom Land has it on little cars that are on a track that goes through various rooms. And they had the, the, the pirates drinking. They had uh, ships uh, fighting. Uh, primitive uh, by today's standards, but it was very similar to what the early stages of Pirates of the Caribbean were. Oh, wow. Well, one, once Freedom Land closed, Woody, uh, Walt Disney then went through with his pirate ride, and he decided what was originally a walkthrough wax museum concept, he converted it to the boat ride we know today. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, this part of the park also had a antique carousel. It was, uh, anyone who knows their carousels know that, know that the Denzel family uh, from Europe had come to America in the early part of the 1900s and had built many of the carousels that we see at Coney Island and elsewhere in the country. Well, Freedom Land purchased a 1912 Denzel uh, that was very unique. Most carousels are two to three rows and one platform. This carousel was four rows with two platforms. Two were on, uh, on the lower platform, two rows were on the higher platform. And they just did not have horses. They had ostriches, tigers, bears, pigs, uh, and other animals as well as horses. It was a very unique carousel, very historic. I have never been able to find where Freedom Land found it, but I know they purchased it back in 1959, 1960 for $3,500. Wow, that's a heck now of a deal. Now you go... Yeah, that, that was an unbelievable price. But again, that was a lot of money for back then. So, you know, everything it seems to be relative uh, to the time and, and place that you're at. Once you leave uh, New Orleans, you come into Satellite City, the contemporary area, and talk about that uh, spaceship you see. That spaceship was sponsored by Braniff Airways, and you would go in... Uh, 
in and sit down. And the seats, uh, actually, as the spaceship supposedly is taking off, the seats decompress to give you that feeling of lift into the air. And Braniff would show a, a, a film of all the places around the world that it traveled, uh, and it would be like 360 degrees within the space uh, spaceship, and uh, but it was taken uh, from the air. Braniff had had uh, had gotten cameras hitched to a large plane, and you got the bird's eye view of all the places in the world as if you had taken lifted off, and you were now looking down uh, onto the earth to all the places where Braniff uh, traveled. Um, also used uh, in this attraction some indoor concerts uh, and interviews with disc jockeys of the day. Um, we know that Murray the K, who was a big, popular New York City disc jockey in the late '50s and '60s, uh, had some of uh, gave uh, hosted some of performances in there of uh, rock and roll talent of the day. We know. Uh, Paul Anka was interviewed by one of the disc jockeys inside uh, that spaceship. And what they did, in addition to the spaceship, they had a simulation of a blast-off bunker from Cape Canaveral. Uh, They had a lot of things involving NASA, so you could get the flavor of the space race. And by 1960, President Kennedy had made the declaration that we will get on the moon within a decade. So they played off of this in this area of the park. In 1961, they were looking to get different people to the park. Yes, you you got the families, you got the kids. You know, popular on television at the time were were the Westerns and Daniel Boone. So you, you got all that history. But some of the older teenagers, as well as young adults, those in their uh, mid-20s or so, once they went through the history portion, no, it didn't thrill them the second time around. Mm-hmm. So how do you attract other people to the park? So the second season, 1961, in this section of the park, Satellite City, they put up a band shell called the Moon Bowl, appropriately named for the, for the themed area of the park. And they uh, put out the largest, what they claimed was the world's largest outdoor dance floor. And from that, they started attracting all the big-name talent. I mentioned Paul Anker already. You had, uh, uh, you had uh, Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons. You had The Temptations. You had little Stevie Wonder when he was 14 years old. Oh, wow. you, also had, uh, you also had singers that would interest the older generation, let's say those who were 30 or, or 40. Uh, you had uh, uh, Pat Boone. Uh, you had Jerry Vale, you had Tony Bennett, uh, you would do some of the swing bands, Harry James, Benny Goodman, uh, perform there, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, uh, singers included Stephen Edie Gourmet, Lena Horne, the Lennon Sisters, and that was a way they could attract more people into the park uh, at, uh, in, in the succeeding seasons. They also had opened that same year in the San Francisco area, uh, an arena, and they called it the Hollywood Arena, where they could do live horseman, uh, horsemanship shows, and they also would tape a lot of the uh, popular television kids shows that were seen in New York, where kids could come in and see the hosts of these shows 
and the shows would be taped and they would air the following week on local television. So that was some of the expansion of the park in succeeding years to get people uh, to return. Uh, character actors, for the uh, at least for the first three and a half seasons, were throughout the park. I mentioned the Cowboys to you before. You had Pirates. You had in little uh, Pirates in the New Orleans section. You had in little old New York and old Chicago, turn of the century, turn of the 1900s. Uh, 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 police officers kind of looked dressed like the Keystone Cops. You had... Uh, old prospectors walking around in the Old Southwest with their mules. Uh, probably the most, uh, the most enjoyable and the most remembered character actor was The Undertaker at Creative Land. He was in the Wild West section, and he would take measurements when the gunfighters went down so he could uh, get ready to dig the hole. He was dressed like an undertaker from the mid-1800s in his black suit, his black top hat, he would carry a shovel over his arm, and there would be a black bow tied to the shovel. And he would also give out his business card and to all the kids <laughs> who would want them. That's cute. His, uh, his name was Digger O'Toole. Digger O'Toole. And, uh, Digger O'Toole, and he really engaged a lot with the kids. And the stories, I, I, I remember him uh, fondly. Um, he was, he was, you know, he would put on the mean face, but, you know, get some kids coming up to him and he would just melt. And, and the kids loved him. And, uh, I have heard from, uh, in, in writing the book from several of the character actors that he was, it was all an act. He was as wonderful, uh, off stage, so to speak, uh, as he was in his character when he was portraying The Undertaker. Uh, he also came from Broadway. He was in several shows um, on Broadway, and he uh, he loved his role at Freedomland because he had said in an interview, I don't have lines to memorize. I don't have tape marking where I have to stand. I can improvise everything. And wow. he was there for the entire run of the park. That's awesome. So, uh, everyone, we're about an hour and 15 minutes in the show. If you haven't gotten a chance yet, check out Freedom Land USA, The Definitive History, published by Theme Park Press. It's available on Amazon, eBay, and other websites. We're talking with Mike Virgentino. So, Mike, uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, give us an idea of what the how, how this all turned out in the end, and then they can catch most of these details in your book and check it out. Sure. Um, well, it didn't end... Well, for Freedom Land, as we said earlier, it closed after the 1964 season. Only found out years later, many years later, uh, that Freedom Land was not planned uh, to last a very long time. Oh, wow. uh, a lot of people today in New York say uh, that the New York World's Fair was the final nail in the coffin for Freedom Land and forced it to close. But I have, in, in my research, have found out to just be a, an urban myth. Because when Freedom Land filed for bankruptcy in September of 1964, their public announcement cited the New York World's Fair. They said, we cannot compete with the New York World's Fair. That was the public statement to cover uh, their backsides. Hmm. Because if you think of it, 
Freedom Land had existed for five seasons now. The New York World's Fair opened in 1964 and was going to close in September or October 1965. So the fair would have been gone after two years. Yeah. What, what I found out was an interview with the landowner, William Zeckendorf, uh, about uh, eight years after Freedom Land closed person was asking him about his company. He, his company uh, eventually went bankrupt at the same time Freedom Land was declaring bankruptcy, but for different, different reasons. And they asked him about Freedom Land. And he said, oh, Freedom Land was a whim that we got into for the land. Of course, you know, it was a placeholder for the land. Oh. And that got me thinking and doing the research. And the bottom line was there was uh, plans to build uh, the housing development that is currently on the property as early as the mid to late 1950s. But uh, the, the politicians of New York City wanted it. The unions, the construction unions wanted it. Again, that union involvement uh, with Freedom Land. Um, the city planners wanted it because they knew that certain parts of the city were going to collapse as we went into the 1960s. And whether you're from New York City or not, you know the stories of uh, in the 70s, or the late 60s, 70s, when the South Bronx caught on fire and, and people were moving out of the or trying to move out of the city. Well, the, the South Bronx, for an example, had been from the, the, the late 1800s, had been the melting pot. You had Jews, Italians, Irish, Germans. Well, that was starting to change after World War II. You had more African Americans moving into the South Bronx. You had more uh, uh, Puerto Ricans coming into the South Bronx, a lot of them moving up from Upper Manhattan. Well, the people who were living there... Uh, were longtime families, but when the guys came back from World War II and the Korean War, they didn't want to live in the same six-story walk-ups. These buildings didn't have elevators. They were built so long ago. They wanted their little patch of greens, so they were moving out to Queens, to Staten Island, or to the suburbs so they could have the house with the little white picket fence. The city planners, the politicians, had to figure out how are we going to keep these people in the city? So they started planning for massive apartment complexes. And the people who could not afford to leave the city to buy a house could be able to buy a cooperative apartment at maybe $1,000 a room and for a two-bedroom apartment. But they could not build these 25- and 30-story buildings, and, and they did it in several places of the city. But they could not do it in the North Bronx because this was marshland. The Army Corps of Engineers would not permit them to build these massive huge structures on marshland because of the shifting tide. So uh, they said uh, to the uh, landowner, William Zekadorf, to the city planners, the politicians, we got to do a 20-year study. We drive pilings into the ground and check them every year or every two years to see if the tides are shifting these pilings. We're driving maybe eight, ten feet into the ground. Well, city, the city planners, the politicians, even William Zeckendorf, the unions, they couldn't wait because they knew what was happening in the South Bronx and other parts of the city. 
they had to get these things built so people could move there so they could keep uh, many of the residents within the city limits. They were worried about the tax base fleeing the city. And um, the politicians and everyone else involved said, we can't wait. Someone twisted the arm of the Army Corps of Engineers. Because they came back with a, with a second plan, Plan B. We will give you variances to build these 25, 30-story apartment buildings on the property if you put buildings on the property that are two to three stories tall, last for five years without foundation cracks, without wall cracks, buildings don't collapse. If after five years these buildings last intact, you'll get the variance to start building these apartment buildings. Well, along comes the idea for Freedom Land. William Zeckendorf says, put it on my property. Uh, Freedom Land lasts exactly five years. The buildings in a theme park, as you know, walk down Main Street in Disneyland, are two to three stories tall. None of the buildings had issues. And they purposely mismanage Freedom Land. Now, uh, uh, C.V. Wood has, uh, in 1960, had moved on to other projects, so he was not involved in oh. the management. They, they, they were really, uh, we found out later, two sets of books showing the good attendance <laughs> and the made-up poor attendance, the good <laughs> revenues and the made-up poor revenues, that they had to file for bankruptcy. And when they were in bankruptcy court, since they already had gotten there five years and knew they had the variances to build these buildings, in the bankruptcy court, the, they said they were asked, well, what are your plans for the property? We're going to sell our assets, consolidate our liabilities, and here are the plans for Co-op City, which houses uh, approximately uh, 15,000, I think it's 15,000 apartments, 25,000 people. It's the largest cooperative housing project in the world. Wow. And that's what's sitting on that property, along with a shopping center where Freedom Land uh, once lived. Wow. And so it's, it's probably more profitable in the long term to do that, maybe. I don't know. Well, it, it could have been, but uh, they couldn't get uh, they couldn't get the variances uh, until they convinced the Army Corps of Engineers to, to this Plan B. Uh, what is interesting is that William Zeckendorf loved Freedom Land. He was trying to figure out a way to make it exist in a in a consolidated uh, uh, park. Originally, the attractions were 85 acres. He was planning to consolidate it to 30 acres. But while the time Freedom Land was going toward bankruptcy, his own company was going toward bankruptcy, <laughs> and he could not do this. There was a plan to move it to Florida, uh, brick by brick, to move the entire park down to Dunedin, Florida, outside of Tampa. Wow. But as that idea was floated and they, uh, the people down there started looking into it, they got wind that Walt Disney was looking in Florida for property that eventually would become Walt Disney World. Oh, wow. So... Uh, the Freedom Land plan to pick it up and move it got nixed. Wow. I think it would have been interesting if they would have gotten down there first because that's such a hub down there in Orlando now. Uh, that's right. But uh, they weren't going to, the, the local investors down in Florida were not going to battle with, with the Disney Brothers. Awesome uh, sauce. They, 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 could, they couldn't battle with that. Yeah. So that. So so they just nixed the idea. So, so Freedom Land uh, sold off a lot of its attractions. Uh, some of them, I don't know where they went. Some of them went to other parks. The earthquake ride and the Buccaneer ride spent another 25 years or so at the park in Cedar Point. Uh, 
Um, they then got mothballed and pulled out, uh, I'm going to say, in the late 1980s. Uh, some attractions went up to a park in Lake George, New York. Uh, they have since been removed because, again, you're talking about attractions that were made in the early 60s. As parks morph into thrill rides, uh, coasters, they pull out these, these other rides uh, that were more popular in the 50s and 60s. Wow. Uh, so uh, very few remnants of Freedom Land still exist around the country. That's interesting. And, and it, it, it sounds like it started between what, what uh, C.V. Wood did at Disneyland. It started a whole, it seems like it started a whole sort of crush of other amusement parks around you know, Six Flags, I guess, uh, Storytown, Cedar Point, Pleasure Island. It, it started this whole sort of uh, role of these parks around the nation. And one of Woody's, Woody's parks still exists. Six Waves Over Texas in Arlington was opened the year after Freedom Land opened. <clears throat> and why does it exist? Because the, uh, the local investor and businessman uh, down in Arlington was sharp. He, he built, uh, he put sharp people in control, and that, uh, that park has been running for uh, 60 years now, and it's been a success. Wow. So it showed you that it was not Woody, uh, Woody's concepts that failed. It was who are the local investors, who are, the, who are running the park, because Woody was just coming in, designing and creating the parks, and then moving on. A couple other things that your listeners might know, they might have heard of the community of Lake Havasu in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh that community has had brought over uh, the original London Bridge, had oh, taken yeah. it down piece by piece and put it in Arizona. Mm-hmm. The man who did that was Steve Wood. Oh wow! Wow, he's, he's yeah, he's a real he unknown, was, and he's contributed so much stuff. Uh, he also was involved in the design of the Riverwalk uh, down in San Antonio. Oh, wow. So Wood had the talent, Wood had the expertise, Wood had good people working with him throughout the years, and it's it, writing this book, doing the, the Freedom Land Facebook page, is it, just getting his recognition that he belongs in the uh, America's theme park timeline. He was a significant contributor. And the industry, even though the, uh, the Disney company doesn't recognize him, the industry does. He's in the uh, industry hall of fame as uh, as an innovator and a creator. And he was acknowledged. Unfortunately, uh, after he had passed away, uh, he was acknowledged in the nineteen uh, nineteen ninety. But he is there in their hall of fame now. So, uh, also with my book and the book I mentioned earlier in this talk, uh, three years in Wonderland. What he is getting his recognition. That's awesome. That's awesome. And my audience, you can check it out. You can go to Amazon, eBay, or other websites. Search for Freedom Land USA, the definitive history. It's published by Theme Park Press. Are there some other websites you want to plug, uh, Mike, before we go? Well, I would just say if you're on Facebook, uh, the Facebook page is known as Freedom Land USA. Uh, the world's largest entertainment center. We have over 10,000 people following us. So come and join the fun, even if you never saw the park. It's part of theme park history. You will enjoy what we put there. Uh, And also you can find uh, the same things on Twitter and Instagram if you use that social media. 
Uh, other than that, there's not much out there in, in terms of uh, Freedom Land because it was so long ago. If you're not a baby boomer, you wouldn't remember it. Uh, but it, it, I've noticed that at uh, some of the public presentations I, that, that I uh, schedule, a number of young people come because they're into theme park history. And for some reason, uh, Freedom Land has, has touched them, and they want to learn more about it. So that's a good thing. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Mike, for being on the show. We certainly appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, this is this has been really cool. And I'm sure your book goes into an incredible amount of detail on these things and brings back a lot of wonderful childhood memories for folks. Yes, it, it does. We, we have interviews with about 18 park employees. We have memories from about 20 uh, baby boomers who were kids and enjoyed the park. A uh, lot of background stories. And a lot of people have told me as they're reading the book, about every page they turn, they go, wow, I didn't know that. I really delved into the, the nooks and crannies uh, to find out information uh, about Freedom Land that wasn't publicly known. So uh, it's an enjoyable read. Be sure to get the books, guys. Freedom Land USA, The Definitive History, published by Theme Park Press, available on Amazon, eBay, and other websites. Thanks for being on the show, Mike. We certainly appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chris. I've enjoyed it.